Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week we looked at the social role of the monastic community, particularly in producing a center of expertise analogous to modern communities that carry adept knowledge forward. Today we look at a passage in which the Buddha declares an explicit mission statement for the Sangha with this in mind. The Buddha's mission statement for the Sangha consists of ten bullet points. The excellence of the Sangha, the comfort of the Sangha, the curbing of the impudent, the comfort of well-behaved monastics, the restraint of effluence related to the present life, the prevention of effluence related to the next life, the arousing of faith in the faithless, the increase of the faithful, the establishment of the true Dhamma, and the fostering of discipline. The first four points determine the internal dynamics of the Sangha. The next two, the individual progress of the monks. And the last four, the external dynamics of the Sangha. Let's look at these in turns. We'll save the last four for next week. The first bullet point is the excellence of the Sangha. The Sangha must be excellent because it sustains something quite sophisticated and precious, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. The nuns and monks are the designated full-time caretakers of the Dharma. The Vinaya ensures the conditions for deep practice and study and for the harmony within the Sangha. Excellence of the Sangha entails that its membership is exclusive. This is a critical point. Its members become exclusive through their vows, through the willingness to take on very simple lives of renunciation, a lifestyle fully in accord with Dharma, but beyond the consideration of most people. Initially, to become a member of the Sangha is quite easy, but sustained membership requires enormous trust in the Dharma recognition of the disadvantages of samsaric life and oodles of personal discipline. In most cases, it entails rigorous training in dharma meditation and vinaya, concentrated in this life among the renunciates the dharma burns most brightly. By way of analogy, the scientific community must be excellent because it sustains something sophisticated and productive of rapid progress in understanding the nature of our universe. Science concentrates people of exceptional training into a persistent, stimulating, 
and highly cooperative, if not always harmonious, community. Excellence also entails that its membership be exclusive, in this case ensured through years of intense education, evaluation, and training, culminating in apprenticeship under a senior research scientist to acquire the competence to conduct independent research. The second point in the Sangha's mission statement is the comfort of the Sangha. The Sangha appears to have been planned as the ideal society writ small. The excellence of the Sangha makes that feasible. Internally, the Sangha, as envisioned by the Buddha, observes no class distinctions, provides an exemplary level of gender equality, is regulated in a way to avoid conflicts and maintain harmony, observes procedures to negotiate disagreements should these arise, is democratic and only minimally hierarchical. At the same time, the Sangha is embedded in and dependent on a greater society whose values may be often contrary, but with which it must harmonize. Accordingly, it takes care to conform or at least provide the perception of conforming to the expectations of the wider society and certainly its standards of etiquette. It's worth noting that many rules observed by Buddhist monks and nuns early on were recommended or inspired by lay people discontented in one way or another with the behavior of some monastics. Some regulations seem to be symbolic and I suspect purely for public perception that is not necessarily reflective of the values of the ideal society. For instance, lay people pay respects to monastics, but not vice versa. The uniform appearance of the Buddhist Sangha serves to distinguish it from ascetics of other traditions who may observe other standards and from the laity who have a distinct role. As an ascetic renunciate community, monks and nuns depend completely on material support from the lay community. This affords them the leisure of practice, study, and good works. Remarkably, the Buddha not only makes receipt of this support mandatory, monastics cannot, for instance, grow their own food or live off their own resources, but then redoubles this dependence by limiting the monastics' right to retain offerings, especially of food, for which ownership expires at noon on the day it is offered. Monastics are not allowed to engage in exchange, such as dharma talks for food or blessings for money. This provides a high degree of insularity from the concerns and influences of the outside world, including from the need for livelihood, ensuring, among other things, that the Dharma will not become a commercial product, tweaked for popular appeal. It also means that monastics can engage patiently in long-term practice toward profound but long-term attainment without the pressure to produce identifiable results.
The scientific community analogously receives material support through professorships, research grants, etc., from the broader society, both to sustain its much higher living standards and to offset the costs of research, equipment, publication, travel, and so forth that its functions entail. This permits its members to engage in nearly full-time research, training, and teaching, fulfilling the functions of the community. The assumption of academic freedom and the institution of tenure gives the scientific community a high degree of insularity from the prevailing concerns of the outside world, unbiased by politics, religion, superstition, other popular notions, practical applications, or benefits or profitability. It also means scientists can engage patiently in long-term research with no pressure to produce identifiable results. We'll take the third and fourth bullet points together. These are the curbing of the impudent and the comfort of well-behaved monastics. The Sangha maintains high standards of behavior to ensure ethical conduct, conduct befitting the role of a renunciate, celibacy, a nominal personal footprint, harmony of the Sangha, harmony between Sangha and laity, preservation of the reputation of the Sangha, reaching decisions as a group, and restraint of self-gratifying behavior. Regulations are enforced primarily through simple personal acknowledgement of infractions with the intention to do better next time. The Sangha has no forms of corporal punishment and implements justice largely on an honor system. More serious matters are enforced through peer pressure, through expulsion or moving of impudent members to the uneasy fringes of the community for periods of time. For a very small set of very serious offenses, the wayward monk or nun is, from that very instant, no longer of the Sangha. If one manages to hide such an offense, one is simply a layperson in robes who is successfully impersonating a monk or nun. Those, on the other hand, whose behavior is unblemished, garner a great deal of respect, generally among Sangha and laity alike. Scientific communities also maintain high ethical standards, albeit in quite different realms, having primarily to do with potential falsification of data and plagiarism, with disharmonious and unproductive discourse and debate, and with productive evaluation of results and theoretical proposals, scientific standards and methods by peers. Such communities are largely self-regulating, generally at the institutional level, with relatively little centralization of authority. Governance is often in a local university administration, but similar standards of professional conduct are generally recognized and enforced throughout the world scientific community. Institutions share common practices for expelling members 
or to move them to the fringes of communal activities through hiring, funding, and tenure decisions. Pursuit of professional reputation is typically a strong determinant of the behavior of scientists, as distinct from monastics. We've looked at the four points that determine the internal health of the Sangha. Again, they are the excellence of the Sangha, the comfort of the Sangha, the curbing of the impudent, and the comfort of well-behaved monastics. The next two bullet points determine the individual progress of the monastics in their practice. We'll take them together. They are the restraint of effluence related to the present life and the prevention of effluence related to the next life. These two aims alone among the ten refer to the results of actual practice toward awakening. Effluence are unwholesome tendencies and views, the taints from which the human character is purified on the path. The Sangha functions in this regard by securing for itself the life most conducive to upholding Buddhist principles, a life so barren of any opportunity for personal advantage that a self can scarcely find root except in the mind. Into its stead flow the wisdom and compassion that, liberated from the tyranny of personal neediness, burst here and there into various stages of awakening. In this way, the Sangha, as long as it follows the discipline scrupulously, produces relatively effectively noble ones from among its ranks. Monastics are allowed by their vows to do almost nothing for themselves. They are permitted no livelihood, no trade, and are isolated from the conventional exchange economy. Their material needs are offered entirely by the laity. Monastics are proscribed, except in exceptional circumstances, from asking for anything. That is, they do not beg but only offer the opportunity to give. On alms rounds, they're not to prefer one house, the wealthy one or the home of the French chef, over another. They're not even allowed to endear themselves through charm and wit to families with intention of garnering better or greater offerings, nor are they allowed to show off any special psychic powers nor talk about attainments to gain reputation. They can build themselves a dwelling or sew robes for themselves, but if they do so, they must be limited in size and quality. They also curtail frivolous speech, shows and entertainments, and self-beautification. They observe limits on what they can own or store, and they do not eat after noon. Of course, curtailing sexual activity is foundational to monasticism, obviating the most reliable and well-worn route to entanglement in samsara. On the other hand, there are almost no restrictions on what a monastic can do for others, on teaching, pastoral care, good works, advice, even physical labor, as long as it is not compensated. Interestingly, the restrictions on the monastic's aid to other 
for the most part apply to traditional priestly functions, such as predicting the future, healing, or appealing to the mercy of deities. The Buddha created an order of renunciates, role models, and teachers, not of priests. Virtually all of the progress one lay or monastic is likely to make on the Buddhist path will be directly correlated with what is given up, physically and or mentally, the physical trappings of life, relations and obligations, like debt and car ownership, behaviors like parting flirtatiously or imbibing liberally, needy emotions of lust, greed, envy, pride, avarice, aversive emotions of anger, hatred, fear, jealousy, denial, and confusion, the distortion of self-view, and having to be somebody. The Buddhist path entails a long process of disentanglement strand by strand from soap operatic existence of renunciation. The power of the monastic life is in setting high standards of physical renunciation and offering virtually no channel for the practical expression of the afflictive mental factors that refuse to let go and generally assault for a time even the most dedicated monastic heart. Within the monastic container, meditation and study quickly develop ripe and plump fruit. The analogous discipline of science develops a different kind of quality in its practitioners, talent for research. It implements policies that provide very high standards for assessing its quality for publicizing results and for allocating research funding and employment where future results prove most promising. Through continuous discourse at conferences and published journals and informal contexts, research results are continually refined and reevaluated cooperatively within the community to improve their quality peer review and standards for hiring professors, granting tenure, awarding research grants, etc., also provide other forms of constraint and encouragement. We'll stop here for this week. Next week, we'll discuss the final four factors of the Buddha's mission statement for the Sangha. These concern the outward obligations of the Sangha to the larger community, and to the sasana, for it entails maintaining an uncompromised, adept understanding of the dharma and vinaya.